0: Well, we turn to the book of Judges this morning as we continue our series, Walk Through the Bible, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures, book by book. And I hope that this series has been helpful for you. My goal is, is to give you an overview of each book of the Bible so that you have a, a better idea of the, what is the main message of each book and to give you a a fuller understanding of the whole counsel of God. And so that's my aim. As always, I would encourage you to, whether before we come to the next book or after, I would encourage you to read through that book, and you can use the notes uh, that uh, you're given in the worship folder to help um, broaden your study and knowledge of the Word. So that's my aim as we walk through the Bible together, that you will know it better as we, as we come to Judges, we come to a pretty dark book. It's a book that, that ends in darkness. But even, even in the midst of darkness, we will find hope today. And I hope that you will find hope too, because we still live in a very dark world. And I've entitled this message, Judges, How Nations Go Blind and Decay. How Nations Go Blind and Decay. Decay. And I will explain that, uh, that title in a little bit. But we live in a, in a, in a world today that begins with the self. Knowledge, our, uh, our view of morality, of right and wrong, of our values and definitions of, of human flourishing and what nations ought to do or ought not to do, we begin with the self today. What do I think is right or wrong? You ask your average person on the street um, about something in the news and and you, and you they'll say, that is wrong. And they're like, well, on what basis do you say that that's wrong? Well, it just is. It just is. It's just wrong or, or something else. And they'll say, well, that's obviously right. People should be able to live however they want. But you ask them, on what basis do you... Can you objectively say one thing is right or one thing is wrong? And they, and they can't tell you. Just, they say they start with the self. But the reality, and we're going to see this in Judges, is when we start with the self, when we claim to be able to see with our own eyes, that's actually the fast track to blindness, to going blind and descending into darkness and decay. The resounding theme in Judges is that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That will happen over and over again. And we have this picture of God's vision. But then there's another theme that we will see again and again in Judges, is that each man did what was right in his own eyes. And Judges is a picture of this downward spiral of Israel doing what they thought was right in their own eyes and descending into darkness and moral and religious decadence and so it it, that's not a real it's not a real optimistic book but one of the things we need to know is actually it's when we understand the darkness of our depravity we also understand the glory of grace all the more And so we need to hear these dark messages and these warnings so that we also can understand grace. And that's what we're going to see. And we'll end Judges longing for a king who will set things right. And then we get to turn to the New Testament. Please turn uh, your worship folder to page 7. And and as, as usual, I've given an overview of the book here. And I want to look through this together briefly. On page 7 here, I've written the melodic line this way. Judges tells the story of what happened when Israel had no king and each man did what was right in his own eyes. After the death of Joshua, Israel enters into wholesale rebellion against the Lord. Judges describes a downward spiral of national rebellion and deliverance. The Lord will provide 12 judges to deliver Israel from their enemies. But after each deliverance, Israel only deepens their apostasy. Israel's decay is appalling, and the book ends with two gross illustrations of the fruit of national rebellion. As Samson, the last judge, lost his vision and died, so will the nation that claims to do right by its own eyes. Judges leaves us longing for a king who will set things right, and it is only in the pages of the New Testament that we learn of the king who will sit on his father's throne and reign forever. Allegiance to that king is the tonic against society's religious and social moral decay in any age. So that is where we're going this morning, and I'll unpack this this melodic line as we as we work through the book, and then turn to the how the New Testament interprets and uses the book of Judges uh, before we do that uh, in terms of a literary structure, we usually look at uh, again, and some of this is review for you, but we look at the structure of a book, how's the book outlined, like its table of contents, that helps reveal the emphasis of the book. What is the big idea? And the book of Judges is broken into three parts. It starts with a uh, a retrospective prologue of why Israel failed in their conquest to to completely remove the the foreign enemy from the land. Uh, Then the main body of the book deals with Israel's downward spiral going down and down and down during the days of the Judges. And then it ends with two illustrations of the depths of the depravity that Israel has descended into. And so that's how the book is structured uh, as a whole. Uh, And again, as you study God's word in any book, especially the big ones, it's really helpful to know the structure. It's like the road map, so you know where you are while you're driving down the road. And it helps give you a context to what's going on and, and to help better interpret the text. So we're going to work through this together. You can look through the brief literary outline if you want as we go through the text this morning. I'm going to break this message down first by telling the story of Judges and giving you kind of the, the bird's eye view of the book. And then we will go into the pages of the New Testament to see how the New Testament interprets the book of Judges in light of the cross. So let's begin with the uh, the story of judges, when each man did what was right in his own eyes. So in the first part of Judges, it opens up with uh, with good news at first. Israel seems to be taking more of the land, but then as uh, as it goes along in the first chapter, we all start all of a sudden start reading. But they failed to take this spot. They failed to remove these people. And we go, what is going on? And all of a sudden it's like failure, 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 failure. What is, what is the turning point and in, in what's happening? And in, in this prologue, this first part of Judges, we are given the reason why. And it sets the tone for the, the whole book. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we read, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. So that was, that was the covenant was God saying, I will never break my covenant, but you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. But then the angel of the Lord goes on and says, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. We see at the heart of Israel's failure is national rebellion. They broke the covenant and entered into covenants with the foreign nations that they were supposed to drive out. And not only that, they start worshipping their gods. You know, we I've mentioned in weeks past about the kinds of worship that that involved including child sacrifice, offering a child to the god Molech. And it was this like, this this idol statue with these arms, and in his belly was was fire, and then they would put the baby in the arms of Moloch, and the baby would roll down and and be burned alive, and they believed that would bring prosperity, and the people of Israel partook in this kind of gross abominable practice of killing. Babies of human sacrifice, and we've also talked about the cultic prostitution that would that would go on with male prostitutes or female prostitutes. Again, with this idea of fertility religion that they would then bring, a, a, they have a fertile land and fertile crops, and and all of this. And Israel entered right into all of this, rather than removing these abominations from the land. And so the reason for Israel's failed conquest. Think about it. Everything that the first five books of the Bible have been building up to of God's people going into their land. Just think about that. All of that, all the suffering, all of the waiting, all of the hoping for the the future was brought to nothing because they entered into national rebellion against the Lord. So, we move then into the bot the main body of judges, and we see the downward spiral of the of this consequence of what is going to happen and so i i'll I'll, uh, I'll walk you through this, and i'd encourage you you can turn your the pages of your Bible if you want to, but I read in the scripture reading, we begin with the death of Joshua, so everything goes well through Joshua Joshua was strong and courageous. God's people cross the Jordan, they enter the land. The land is divided amongst the people. There are some peoples that still need to be driven out and the land to be given, but all is going well. But Joshua dies and the people forget the Lord. The next generation failed to remember the Lord. And it makes me only wonder, And even in Joshua's day, in the days of the elders of that time, were God's people neglecting their religion and their children even in that time? You know, Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But how can the next generation forget all of these things unless they were never taught it by the generation that came before? And I think we have a, a, a haunting a warning here of what happens in good times for the people of God when things are going well, we assume the gospel, we assume the Bible, we assume theology, we, we assume biblical morality, but then we go and the next generation forgets. One of my theology professors, D.A. Carson, would say, what is, what is assumed in one generation is forgotten in the next. And that if we just assume the faith, For our children, but never teach it to them, it will be forgotten in the next. And so I wonder that, I'm I'm guessing that even in Joshua's day, there were problems that led up to the fact that the next generation completely forgot about God. And so we then come into this downward spiral. And if you've read the book of Judges, you've seen this pattern that happens in Judges where the people are prospering, then they forget about God and serve other gods. Then God hands them over to their, to their enemies. And then Israel cries out for help. And then the Lord saves them again. And in chapter 2, verse 11 and following, we get this downward spiral that Israel served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, provoking the Lord to anger and we read in 2.11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And then, and then the text goes on, The Lord gave Israel over to be plundered by their enemies. Then the Lord raised up judges to save them. But then Israel would not listen to the judges, for they hoard after other gods. So the Lord would raise up judges to save them. But when the judges died, they became more corrupt than their fathers. So chapter 2 is laying out all of this information for us, setting up the whole book. Uh, and then in chapter 2, verse 20 and following, So Yahweh resolved to no longer drive out the nations from the land. And then so Israel lived among their enemies, intermarried with them, and served their gods. It's, it's, this is the foreshadow of everything that's going to happen in Judges, and it's, it's frankly very depressing that Israel's even going to get to a place where they're so corrupt and they're going to cry out for God, and God's going to say, I'm not helping you anymore. Go to the other gods and ask, ask them for help. And we're, we will see that as, as we move along. So that's the cycle. So it's not just a cycle of prosperity, forgetting God, um, being judged, crying out to God, getting help. It's not like a cycle that, that uh, just goes around like this. It's actually spiraling down. Because after each judge dies, the text tells us that actually Israel gets worse and worse and worse. And so they descend into this dark abyss. So we get these judges then, in, in, in starting in chapter 3, verse 7, with Othniel. And we get this really great picture of this judge. Is this, do we have hope here? That, and, and this section with Othniel it begins, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And then we're told that the Lord handed them over for eight years to the king of Mesopotamia. So eight years under a foreign ruler. Then Israel cries out. This is the cycle as it goes. Israel cries out to the Lord. And then the Lord raises up the judge, Othniel, who defeats the king of Mesopotamia. And the land has rest for 40 years. And then the judge dies. Okay. So Othniel is the first judge. And we get this perfect like picture of this cycle that we've just talked about. Israel rebels. The Lord judges Israel. The Lord raises up a judge. The land has rest. The judge dies. And then the cycle begins again. And we get to, we get to Ehud. Uh, this really interesting story that I don't have time to completely uh, unpack with. Ehud, he's the left handed man, you know, who he thrusts the sword into King Eglon. And King Eglon's so fat that the Bible says the fat covered up the sword. And, and he escapes and, and slays 10,000 Moabites. But we have the same thing that happens with Ehud. At the beginning, chapter 3, verse 12, the people of Israel again did was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord hands the Israelites over to the king of Moab for 18 years. They're under foreign rule again for 18 years. Israel cries out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a judge to deliver Israel. And as I said already, Ehud defeats Eglon. And ten thousand moabites they overthrow the Moabites, and the land has rest for eighty years eighty years. by the way, the book of judges covers about a period of four hundred years, so this downward spiral is going to be uh, you know that's that 's longer than you know America, my country home country 's been around, so just kind of put that in perspective and going back four hundred years where you know where would we be in the sixteen hundred somewhere. Yeah, so this is this is the kind of time that this downward spiral is happening. But then we have Shamgar. Just a minor note on Shamgar, who uh, is a minor judge who kills six thousand Philistines with an ox goad, which is like this, like spear, like pointy thing to get ox to go forward. That's all we're told about Shamgar, and he saved Israel in the same time of Ehud, presumably, because then when we get to chapter 4, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So now we get the story of Deborah, who was a prophetess, who was judging Israel in this day, and a man named Barak, who was, a, a, a frankly, a very cowardly figure. And so we, we read in chapter 4 that Israel, again, because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, was under the cruel oppression of Jabin, the king of Canaan, for 20 years, and his ruthless army commander, Sisera. And so the Israel is supposed to have the land of Canaan. Now they're under the rule of the Canaanites here after the days of Ehud. And Deborah is prophesying and judging Israel. And now Deborah is a very interesting character, She's one of the, the few women mentioned in the Bible that, uh, that led the country, that served as a leader. Uh, and there are various interpretations of what that means um, in terms of uh, women in leadership today, and that's a, that's a discussion for another time. But I think and would argue that this also shows the, the depravity of Israel at this time, that there were no men to lead Israel. That the men have forsaken their job. I mean, that's a problem still today of men forsaking their job as husbands and fathers and, and leaving it to the women to do. And actually, Deborah calls Barak out on this. And, and I see this in, uh, in chapter 4. She calls Barak out for failing to obey the Lord. In chapter 4, Verses uh, 4 to 7, we read Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of uh, Lippidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, And this is where I think we see Barak failing to do what God had called him to do. Deborah says to Barak, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisra, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And look at Barak's response. He, He wants to hide behind the skirt of Deborah. Look at this. He says, Well, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And the text says, And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisra into the hand of a woman. And I think um, what the Bible and that the text is showing here is that the men had utterly failed. And their jobs. So the glory is going to go to women. I believe that God has appointed men to lovingly lead and shepherd and protect their homes and to protect the people of God and to provide a place where women and children flourish. And when men fail at their duty, it all breaks down. And we see this being implied in the text here as well and Barak is hiding behind Deborah. Well, if you go, I'll go. Otherwise, I'm not, not doing it. It's, it's my belief, actually, that Barak was supposed to be the judge, but Deborah, as the prophetess, had to fill the role because he refused to do it. And be, and as a shame on Barak, when God does subdue the Canaanites and Sisra, it's going to be the hand of a woman that does it. And the story goes on, Barak does bring, gather this army, and Sisera flees, and he goes uh, to the tent of Jael, who was the wife of Haber the Kenite, who was uh, in partnership or in good standing with Sisera and the Canaanites. He goes into the tent, he says, hide me under the rug, she said, does and he says, I'm thirsty, can you give me something to drink? So she gives him something to drink. And then she takes one of the tent pegs and a hammer and drives the tent peg through the, the temple of Sisra. And the glory that should have gone to Barak goes to jail. And uh, in fact, the words used to describe the glory and the blessing of jail are words that are picked up with Mary who is blessed uh, of all wombs for bearing Jesus. So, in the song of Deborah that comes after that, we, actually, we see this kind of profound uh, glory that is bequeathed onto jail for doing the job that Barak should have done himself. And so then the land has rest for 40 years. But what we see as we move through these judges, the first two judges look really good Othniel and Ehud, they look like picture model leaders. But now as we start to see the judges that are going to come after, they get more and more fallen and fallen and uh, uh, and sinful. And we start getting that picture with Barak and then those that are come after. So then we move to Gideon. And the book of Judges devotes a huge section to uh, to Gideon and then his son Abimelech that comes after and and again that refrain begins the story of Gideon the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord in chapter 6 1 and so the Lord hands Israel over to the Midianites for seven years in more cruel oppression and Israel cries out to the Lord and the Lord delivers Israel through Gideon And there's a whole series of events where we see with Gideon, he doesn't seem to quite be the man of faith that a judge should be. So like God tells Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. He's like, well, can we do a test, Lord? And so he lays a fleece out. Well, if if the fleece is dry and everything else is wet, then I'll believe you. So the Lord does that. But then he's like, well... How about one more test? How about if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then then I'll believe you. And so the the Lord humors Gideon and and does that. But Gideon's faith doesn't seem to be very strong. He seems kind of a a weak, poor excuse for a leader to deliver God's people from the the Midianites. But the Lord uses this fallen man and, and Gideon ends up destroying the altar of Baal in his area and uh, gathering 300 men uh, to do battle as the Lord winnows, winnows down his army so that Gideon knows it's by the grace of God that they win and not by the, the force of, of the army. But even in that, when when Gideon defeats the Midianites, he tells the, the army to shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And you're like, shouldn't it just be like for the glory of God, shouldn't you shout something like that? He's like, well, for the Lord and for me. You're like, that doesn't ring quite right. And we see the vanity of Gideon start to emerge as the rest of his story develops. And towards the end of his life, Israel actually wants to make Gideon king. And he says, no, 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 the Lord will be your ruler. He says, but I tell you what, I will just ask this one thing. Give me all the spoils of the Midianites. So all the wealth of the kings they just delivered were given to, to yours truly, to, to Gideon. So he's like, no, God God's king, but I'll, I'll take the spoils that belong to a king. And then he makes a, a, an ephod out of the spoils, which is like a priestly garment. So now, now not by word, but by deed, Gideon is putting himself in the place of God as king and in the place of God's appointed priest. He's, he's presumptively taking on those things. And we are, we are told in the text that after that, it, uh, Israel whored after that ephod. The, the Bible uses this word, it sounds harsh to us, of whoring, but this idea of prostituting, it's, it's this picture of infidelity. When you're going after and having relations with, uh, unlawfully with somebody else that you should not have. And Israel's doing that. They're, they're taking on the forms of idol worship of the culture and they're whoring after it, and the text says that that ephod becomes a, a thorn and a stumbling block for Israel, for Gideon and his, and his family. And so Gideon dies, and then his son tries to take the throne. And by the way, you know what, you know what Gideon named his son? He named him Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. So Gideon saying, "No, I'm not the king," but he names his son Abimelech, meaning, "My father is king," right? So, this is where it can be helpful to know Hebrew or have a commentary or study Bible, because sometimes the Bible makes a point, but you actually you have to think about what's going on in, in that point. And so we see Gideon presumptively taking this role that was not his. Uh, He had so much glory he could have just had as a judge, but he wanted more and his vanity got the best of him. And when he dies, Abimelech takes over and conspires with the Shechemites to kill 70 of his brothers. So Abimelech wipes out, slaughters 70 of his brothers so that he can be king. And the Shechemites appoint him king for three years. One of Gideon's sons escapes the slaughter, um, utters a curse to the Shechemites and to Abimelech, and you'll have to read that story on your own time, but then we read of the downfall of Abimelech after only three years, and he is killed by a woman who drops a millstone out of a tower as he's trying to burn this tower down with all these Shechemites in it. And then he has this armor-bearer run him through with a with a sword and and the text says god returned the evil of bimelech and made the evil the men of shechem return on their heads through the curse of jotham the son of jerubal which is gideon's other name so we move through then to two minor judges of tola and Jair as this downward spiral continues and then we get to jephthah the the last uh, uh not the last judge but Jephthah is the first judge where God says, I'm not even with you. And in chapter 10, verse 6, we read the people of Israel again. It was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. In other words, they served all the gods in the land, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the Lord puts Israel under hard servitude under the Philistines, the Ammonites, for 18 years. For 18 years. And Israel cries out to God, We've sinned against you. We've forsaken you. Save us. And the Lord refuses to save them. The Lord refuses. Their depravity has gone so far that God says, I'm I'm done with you. And in chapter ten, verse eleven it says, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sodonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time. Of your distress. And so God's not even picking up the phone anymore and coming to the rescue. It's like you call 911 and they just say, We're not coming. And that's the depth to which Israel has descended. So Israel takes matters into their own hands then, and they appoint their own judge. And for the first time, we read of a judge who delivers Israel where the text doesn't say, and the Lord raised up. So now Israel's taking matters into their own hands, and they appoint Jephthah, uh, the Gileadite, as their judge. Um, We read then Jephthah fails in his negotiations with the Ammonites. And then to kind of ensure victory, Jephthah makes a foolish vow to the Lord, if the Lord would give the Ammonites into his hand, he says, The first thing that comes through the threshold of my door, of my tent, I will offer as a burnt sacrifice. And here, for one thing, we see just total presumption, sinful presumption of Jephthah to just say to the Lord, I will sacrifice a human being. What else is going to come over the threshold of his tent door? You know, it's not going to be a goat. It's going to be a person. I will sacrifice, Lord, that person. So he, so Jephthah is bartering with God using a sinful vow with the Lord. I will do this sinful thing uh, because I think it's pious if you will give me the Ammonites. And well, guess what? The Lord calls him out on this and the Lord does allow Jephthah to defeat the Ammonites. But then he returns home and what who's, Who crosses the threshold? It's his only child, his daughter. And then to make matters worse, Jephthah feigns piety by going through with the act. Vows are a serious thing in the sight of God, and they are not to be broken uh, lightly. But if your vow involves sin, it would never be the will of God to go through with that vow and to commit sin. But Jephthah does, and he burns his child as a burnt offering after two months where she had the privilege to mourn the loss of her life. It's horrible. And this is what happens when Israel takes matters into their own hands and appoints their own leaders. Then after that, if it wasn't worse enough, Jephthah goes on and kills 42,000 Ephraimites. So 42,000 of his brothers he goes on and kills with a, with a petty squabble. So we're told that he served six years. And then we're given three more minor judges of Isba and Ilan and Abdon and we know with these judges, they're they're having a lot of children, and they're marrying outside of their families and clan bases. Meaning, they're acting like the pagan kings uh, around them, who would marry off their sons and daughters. It's it's like you know in Europe, where you see like all the ruling rulers are related to each other. I forget the the German family that it is, but uh, like Queen Elizabeth's related to everyone, right? It was the same thing in Europe. You know, you marry off your sons and daughters to the various countries so that you maintain your power base. These judges are starting to do that as well. They're no longer acting as as godly leaders, but they're just acting like the surrounding nations. And then we end then with Samson in this main section of judges. And we have this picture of Samson as a very fallen, fallen leader. The text again says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this time the Lord intervenes and he and he gives a barren family a son, Samson. And he would be a Nazarite. Uh, and you can go back and read about that on your own time if you want. But he would be a Nazarite in the same way that John the Baptist would be a Nazarite and have that vow be wholly dedicated to the Lord. And so Samson's to be wholly dedicated to the Lord, not to cut his hair, not to drink strong wine, but to be faithful to the Lord. But we see that Samson is anything but faithful. Samson really loves the ladies especially the foreign ladies. And uh, he marries a foreign woman, a daughter of the Philistines, and the text says, Samson says, she's right in my eyes. So here we come back to this word picture of sight that comes again and again in judges, well, she's right in my eyes. And so he marries her. Great evil unfolds in destruction because of that. He goes on, he has relations with a, another prostitute, and then, then he, uh, he joins up with Delilah. And uh, Delilah eventually gets uh, coerced by the Philistines to betray Samson. And uh, so his love of foreign women actually becomes his downfall, and that's an illustration of, of Israel with all of their sexual sin as well. It becomes their downfall. It'll be the downfall of Solomon in later days. And we read in 1621, And they gouged out his eyes. And and God gives us this living illustration of Israel at this point. They've They've been doing what is right in their own eyes. They've been doing evil in the sight of God again and again and again. And so even as Samson loses his vision, it's this living illustration of Israel going completely blind and descending into darkness because they forsook the Lord time and time again. So Samson as the last judge, it's like the nail in the coffin for Israel. He goes blind. The lights go out and Israel is in total darkness. So then the book of Judges Concludes with two illustrations illustrating the darkness in which Israel has descended. And I only have time to just give you a brief overview. But first, Judges concludes by illustrating Israel's religious decay. And, and it's this picture of Micah who steals his mother's silver, who then gives it back to her, and she says, Praise God, let's make a carved image to Yahweh and makes an idol. Uh, and then he sets up his own household shrine and appoints his son as a, uh, his, his own priest. And then later he gets another uh, Levite from Bethlehem and appoints him as his priest. And they're setting up their own worship when God's authorized worship was not there the Danites come through there wandering in the land. They don't know where their inheritance is yet. They see the, the house, Micah's household gods and they steal the household gods. And then they get the, the Bethlehemite Levite to come with them and and set up their own religious worship and, and, and shop. And the text says that, that they did that until they were removed from the land, which is a picture to when Israel will be, uh, the northern tribes will be wiped out by the Assyrians. And it shows just this picture of of total religious uh, religious decay. But then even in a much more gross way, the second and final illustration, and this is how Judges ends, we're given a picture of Benjamin's gross sexual sin and Israel's botched justice. And the, the text says here, I, I forgot to say before, this is where we get the first refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, and then we get to chapter 19 to the end. In those days, there is no king in Israel. And we read about a Levite who takes a, a concubine, which is kind of like a wife, um, but not, but takes functionally like a wife, takes a concubine. The concubine is unfaithful. She goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. The Levite goes after his concubine, and they're there for some days, and then they move on. And as they move on, rather than stay in what will eventually become Jerusalem, because um, the, still the foreigner, foreign enemies lived in Jerusalem at the time, they go to Gebeah, which is a town in Jerusalem. And they settle there and they, nobody welcomes them in. So they're going to stay in the city square. But then this old man comes, says, come stay at my house. So he brings them there. But then the text says, all the men of Gebeah, stormed his house and his door and said let that man come out that we might know him which is a euphemism for for sex so the 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 people of god in Gebeah are attempting to gang rape to embark in homosexual gang rape of this levite and uh the and if that's not worse enough the 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 old man tries to Ward him off and says, well, let me give you my daughter and the concubine. So he's going to just hand over one of his daughters, if you can imagine that, and the concubine, and have your way with them. And they refuse. They want the dude. But then it gets so bad that the old man, we are reading the text, grabs the concubine and just throws her out there. And so they get involved with gang rape, the, whole, the text says, from evening till morning. It's, it's it's gross and disgusting and abominable of an act that you can imagine. And this concubine, he says in the morning, is at the threshold of the door. The Levite opens up the door and just callously says, get up, let's go. It's just, it just sickening. And then, but she's actually dead. So he takes the woman home, cuts her in 12 pieces, sends her to all the tribes of Israel, and they gather against Bethlehem. They end up wiping out all but 600 of the Bethlehemites, killing every man, woman, and child. Um, what? The Benjaminites. Oh, the Benjaminites. They, uh, they killed all of them, but 600. But then they're like, well, how do we repopulate their people? So then they say, well, let's, is, were there any tribes or any people that didn't come up and help us fight the Benjaminites? And, uh, well, yeah, Jabesh Gilead didn't. So then they allow the Bethlehemites to go and steal 400 virgins from Benjamin, but they still needed 200 more. So then they say, well, hey, why don't you uh, ambush the daughters of Silo- Shiloh when they come out? And so then they, their, their twisted justice condones the rape of the daughters of Shiloh. And so we we just see this broken morality, and then this broken sense of justice, way overkill, destroying, destroying almost an entire tribe of Israel, and then finding it just to just let people steal other people's daughters and wives. It's just absolutely gross and horrendous. And this is the people of God. These are the church-going people. And this is where they have descended. And the text ends, "...in those days there was no king in Israel." And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what do we what do we make of this very dark, dark book? I just want to include uh, close with just a few minutes on how the New Testament views the book of Judges. Number one, Judges leaves us longing for a greater king. This refrain that happens four times at the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king. And then twice, we read. We read everyone did did what was right in his own eyes, as blind as they were. And it's not going to be until the New Testament that we find it. We're going to see this refrain again and again as we move into Ruth, and then we move into First and Second Samuel in the days ahead. We're going to want God's man to be on the throne, but all these, even the old, even the best of the Old Testament kings, aren't going to cut. They're not going to make the cut. And it won't be until God himself comes to earth and takes on human flesh that the true king and the kingdom that will never end will be inaugurated. And we read in Luke chapter 1, 31 to 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, uh, which is the same kind of language, by the way, that is used in Judges for Samson. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So it's not going to be until the coming of Christ that Israel and God's people, Jew and Gentile, will have a king and kingdom that is flawless, that is perfect. Secondly, the New Testament commends the faith of even these fallen judges. It's actually, even Jephthah, who was the self-appointed judge, is mentioned in in the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. Samson's mentioned, and even Barak, cowardly Barak. And I think that should be an encouragement to all of us, because if we're honest, we know how fallen and imperfect we really are. And yet even these fallen figures and judges prevailed by faith, even as depraved and fallen as, as they were. And the New Testament holds them up as models. So I hope that's encouraging to you because the devil wants to discourage you. The devil wants you to see your sin and say, that's it. God's abandoned me. That's no no point in even trying. But even if God can even uphold the faith of Samson, the foreign womanizer, or Jephthah, the self-appointed man, or Barak, the coward, He can He can certainly use our faith too, my friends. So the New Testament commends as a model for faith even these fallen figures that we read in, in Judges. And then lastly, the New Testament uses judges as a warning against apostasy. Apostasy means falling away, walking away from God. It's interesting to me that the one book in the New Testament that explicitly cites judges is the book of Hebrews, which primarily deals with the problem of apostasy, people that want to abandon Jesus for the old covenant system and walk away. And it's in that book that judges surfaces again. And it is a warning for all of us against walking away. And I read to you in the scripture text, and I'll, I'll read it again here. We see in Hebrews 10, uh, as well as other places in the book, this warning of falling away from God. In Hebrews ten twenty six. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And Then the writer of Hebrews concludes, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in Judges, we see God, who holds Israel in his hands, handing the Israelites over to these foreign enemies, handing them over, and then eventually saying, I'm not with you guys anymore. And that's the warning in Hebrews, that if we continue sinning deliberately, rejecting the truth. And what he's talking about here, sinning deliberately, rejecting the grace of Christ. You'll eventually just be handed over to the Lord who says, vengeance is mine, and he will judge his people. So it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want to just add one note uh, by way of conclusion. This is a warning to nations too. And I titled this sermon, uh, this morning judges how nations go blind and decay. It's not just the people of God that should receive this warning, but every nation: Norway, America, Sri Lanka, wherever, whatever country you come from. South Africa, Indonesia. I'm just looking out. I love, I love our church and how we have people from all over the place. That nations that go on rejecting God will go blind and will fall into the abyss of. Darkness, and I'll conclude with uh, this warning that actually comes in the prophet Jeremiah, but it connects to the warning in Deuter or in Judges as well. The Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter eighteen, verse seven: "If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster." That I intended to do to it, and if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to the voice to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intend to do to it. And so God has this principle: whatever country we come from, and however close that country had ever been to to the Lord or to basic Christian teachings, uh, that. Prosperity follows those countries that do that. But then the cycle of judges also kicks in. And you forsake the Lord. And you think you've got this prosperity on your own. And just by the country's wisdom or might or power. And that's the fast track to blindness and destruction. And so we ought to pray for not just church leaders. I hope you pray for me and for your other church leaders. But pray for our civil leaders too. That they would... Relent and return to the Lord. That the countries that we are privileged to inhabit it would also be blessed and would not decay and go blind as they very closely are right now in the West especially. So I pray that you will heed this warning. That you will both uh, hear the warning to not fall away from the God and sin lightly and deliberately. But that you will also take courage And that God did provide the king that we needed. And that God can even commend our fallen faith, as sinful and fallen as we are, and use that to preserve us till the better country comes and the better king world without end. Amen.